We need to just stop and think about Him, this one called Jesus Christ. Imagine one born to die for the sins of the world. That was His destiny. I mean, in an eternity past, He knew that was His destiny. To be born of a virgin womb, to come into this world, to live a sinless life, to grow up, to be mocked and scorned and crucified, and die for the sins of the world. He did it all for you. That's the message. He did it all for you. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah in the 53rd chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. We've been in a little series here, and a few weeks ago we asked the question, who is this? Who is this? Of course, we're talking about Christ. And then we followed up with, what do you do with Him? What shall I do with Him? Well, today we'd like to talk about what He did for us what he did for us. This is a very famous chapter in the Bible, written about 700 years before the birth of Christ. We won't look at all of it, but we'll look at several verses of it here. Picking it up in verse number 3, it's talking about Christ. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne or carried our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We find in these three verses, as well as many others in the Bible, a very graphic picture and in a depiction of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. I'd like to talk about that. He did it all for you. That's the message. He did it all for you. Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless now this time in your word. I pray that we would really focus on what our Savior did for us. And Lord, that it would not be something we'd approach casually, something we'd ever get used to. But Father, we'd still stand in awe and wonder over what He did for us. Help us now to comprehend it somewhat. We'll thank You for it. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a song that was written many years ago. I'm talking about hundreds of years ago. It's an ancient song. It it, it was born in antiquity. And many of you are familiar with it and the tune and the title, Oh, Sacred Head, Now Wounded. It has, I think, seven, eight, or nine verses to it. And so I just kind of honed it down to three, but let me give to you some of the lyrics of it. Speaking of Christ, it says, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. Men mock and taunt and jeer thee, thou noble countenance, though mighty worlds shall fear thee and flee before thy glance. 
How art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn? How doth thy visage language that once was bright as morn? And then this final one. My Savior, be thou near me when death is at my door. Then let thy presence cheer me, forsake me nevermore. When soul and body languish, oh, leave me not alone, but take away mine anguish by virtue of thine own. You know, as we've been talking about Christ, I've used this expression, it was Spurgeon who coined it, but pause my soul in wonder. <laughs> That's what we need to do. You know, we get so hurried in our hustle and our bustle, but, but we need to just pause, pause my soul and wonder at this one called Jesus Christ. Oh, sacred head, now wounded. Sometimes just the title of a song just says it all. Jesus, the very thought of thee. We need to just stop and think about him. Imagine one born to die for the sins of the world. That was his destiny. I mean, in an eternity past, he knew that was his destiny. To be born of a virgin womb, to come into this world, to live a sinless life, to grow up, to be mocked and scorned and crucified and die for the sins of the world. This past week, we've talked about uh, the very fact that uh, we have to do something with that. What have you done with that? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. We've also answered the question who He is, and we know He's not just the Son of God, but He's God the Son. He is deity. Well, today, we'd like to talk about what He did and how He did it for you, how He did it for us And as we take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ and this text, this tremendous passage here in Isaiah 53, we see first of all that he was sensitive to the prophecy. Notice beginning in verse number 3, it says he is despised and rejected of men. I want you to look at some of these adjectives. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah says we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Of course, 700 years before his crucifixion, it's talking about what he went through as he lived his life and as he went to the cross. In verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isn't that good to know? If you're carrying a burden today, it says, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then it tells us in verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. Not his own, he had none. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's what he did for us. He had no iniquities of his own, but he was bruised for ours. It says the chastisement of our peace, that is our peace with God, was upon Christ, him, and with his stripes we are healed, that is forgiven of our sins. We find here the sacrifice of Christ mentioned 700 years before he was born, a a prophecy, if you will. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he fulfilled all this because he was sensitive to those prophecies about him. Imagine your obituary written seven centuries or even ten centuries or even more centuries before you're even born. There's your obituary. There's your epitaph. There it is. It's, it's branded and it's, it's, it's in slate. It's in marble. And the shadow of the cross of Christ followed him all through his life because he was born to die. You know, we don't think enough of that. Imagine knowing you were going to even die prematurely. 
It's one thing to live out a, a, a ripe old age. In fact, I know of a fella, a businessman, an intelligent man, but, but he, he swears he's going to die at age 73. It's like he just knows it's going to happen. It's a, a premonition he has. And he has told me more than once, I just know I'm going to die at 73. And he's crowding 70 right now. But Jesus Christ knew it would be around age 33 as far as we can tell. Imagine knowing you're going to die prematurely. Imagine knowing you're only going to live for 33 years. The time when uh, most couples are starting a family, there you are dying. The, the time when most people are entering into their career and, and catching their, their stride and just beginning to smell success, all of a sudden, pss, your life is, is snuffed out. Jesus Christ, at age 33, is writhing in anguish and pain in, in, in the most horrible death imaginable on a Roman cross before he's even 34. In fact, as a boy in a synagogue, no doubt he studied Isaiah 53. And he read the ancient scrolls, and he saw there as he studied the scrolls' adjectives like we read a moment ago. Uh, despised in verse 3, rejected, sorrow, grief. It says he was stricken, smitten, afflicted. And knowing all that was coming down on him, in verse 5 says, wounded and, and bruised and, and chastised. And it speaks of stripes and, and all these things mentioned. And as a boy, he's studying this and knowing this is describing him. And all these things are awaiting him like this, this menacing glare in the future. And he knew that his day would come. Verse number 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb or silent, so he openeth not his mouth. Imagine, imagine Mary, his mother, reading these things. And, 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 and really, maybe not even understanding, this is talking about her son. But for Jesus Christ, Calvary was his constant companion. It, it followed him every, everywhere through life. He never ran from it. He never pushed it away. He just accepted it. He was sensitive to the prophecies about him. In fact, in Mark 9 and verse 12, he said, It is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. He never recoiled in, in horror. He never tried to dodge it. He accepted it. He was sensitive to these prophecies. He said, It is written of the Son of Man, speaking of these Old Testament prophecies, that he must suffer many things. He was committed to that. In fact, he planned on it from his childhood up. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, if you would. You know, if you look at an Olympian, you're, you're, you're looking at somebody who has a goal, and that is to compete in the Olympics and, and win a medal, maybe even a gold one. And so for several years, uh, he'll plan and, and prepare and, and, and eat right and exercise and, and practice because he is committed. He has a purpose. He has a plan, something he wants to attain. Well, Jesus Christ, all through his life, had this goal. And as we follow him through his life, we see that. Notice here in Matthew 16, Christ is talking, and we pick it up in verse number 21. It says, From that time forth began Jesus to show or speak unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He's telling his disciples, It has to happen. I must fulfill the scriptures. Notice verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, 
Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In other words, he knew this was of God. Going to the cross was of God. It was God's plan to redeem sin from man and the fallen human race. Look in Matthew 20 and verse number 17, just a page or so forward. You know, Peter didn't want to hear it. <laughs> we do the same thing. When somebody gives us bad news, maybe you've had a loved one with a terminal illness and, and they begin to, to talk about when I'm gone and, and, and we cover our ears. Now, don't, don't talk like that. We, we don't want to hear such things. Don't say those things as though it would go away. That's kind of how Peter felt. Be it far from thee, Lord. Stop talking like that. And Jesus said, no, I'm sensitive to the prophecies. It must be this way. Notice in Matthew 20 and uh, verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge, and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Jesus Christ is telling them what's going to happen. He knew what the Scripture said. He was keenly aware of the Old Testament writings, the passages, and he was sensitive to them and the fulfillment of them. He knew what Isaiah 53 said. He knew that Psalm 22 talked about his, uh, his hands and feet being pierced. He knew Zechariah talked about the Jewish people, the nation, looking upon him whom they pierced. He knew all that would, 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 would come to pass. There are 333 Old Testament prophecies that speak of Christ and his suffering. And he was, he was sensitive to every single one of them. In fact, look in chapter 26 of Matthew here. It was no secret. He told his disciples it was coming. In Matthew 26, and in verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He said, fellas, it's coming. And he was aware of it, and he was willing to go through it. He was, first of all, sensitive to the prophecy, but secondly, he was subjected to the pain, to the pain of Calvary, to the pain of fulfilling all those prophecies mentioned of him in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us back in our text, he would be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible tells us, surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He went through all that. He was subjected to the pain. There was emotional pain, obviously. There was uh, mental pain. There was physical pain. In fact, turn to John chapter 13, if you would. As we follow him down that final week, he spends his, his waning days, his remaining days in the vicinity of, of Jerusalem. And it comes down after 33 years of, of living under the shadow of the cross, after 33 years of Calvary looming with that menacing glare over his head, it comes down now to the night before he goes to the cross. And so he assembles with his disciples. They're having the Last Supper, but they're not sitting at a table like we would picture it or like da Vinci painted it. No, back in the Middle East, and especially in those days, they reclined on the floor, they laid on mats, maybe they, they rested on their elbow, and they just kind of got in a circle. And there they, they shared the Passover meal. Uh, composed of, of lamb, a uh, lamb cooked with bitter herbs to remind them of the bondage they had there in, in Egypt at one time. 
There would be, of course, unleavened bread. There would be something called the sop. It was like a sauce that they, they dipped the bread in, made up with, with uh, special herbs and such. And in John chapter 13, we pick up the story in verse number 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Imagine Christ saying this. In the middle of this meal, it's like a hydrogen bomb of condemnation. He says, gentlemen, one of you, one of you twelve men is going to betray me. And that would have been, that would have been unbelievable. And, uh, and in fact, the guy who was guilty of it was perhaps the most trusted of all twelve. It was Judas. You say, well, why do you say that, pastor? Because he was the treasurer. You don't put somebody in charge of the money that you don't trust. I'm sure he trusted the rest of them, but, but Judas handled the money. And, and Judas was the educated one. The rest of them really weren't. They were tax collectors and fishermen and blue-collar men. Judas, by the way, was probably bilingual. The rest of them weren't. Judas was not from Galilee. The rest of them were. They were humble men. Judas was the only true blue blood. And earlier that evening, Judas had already sold out Christ. We read about it in Matthew 26, 15. It says, And Judas said unto them, that is the elders and the Sadducees, What will you give me? And I will deliver him, or Christ, unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. So the deal's already been made. The money's probably already on him. There jingling in his pocket are these 30 pieces of silver. And in verse number 21 of John 13, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Imagine what went through the mind of Judas at that time. It's like the money in his pocket began to, to pulsate like, like electricity, like, like, a, like a lightning bolt. And, and yet he was cool and he was calm and he pretended. That's how cunning he was. In fact, in verse number 26, And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, then said Jesus unto him, That thou do, do quickly. Verse number 30, He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Notice he's dismissed. And even after he left, nobody suspected that he was such a rat that Jesus was dismissing him. Verse 29 says, For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. They still hadn't caught on. What, a, what an industrial strength rat Judas was. But we find that Jesus Christ was willing to go through it. He was subject to the pain. By the way, Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Later on, uh, Peter would deny it. Later on, Thomas would doubt it. In fact, the Bible tells us in Mark fourteen fifty, they all forsook him and fled. There's really a lesson here. The Bible tells us in Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. There are some that say this is the very middle verse of the whole Bible. Psalm 118, verse number 8 tells us, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It doesn't matter who they are. I, we should be careful about putting anyone on a pedestal. Uh, only put Christ on that pedestal. Anybody could let you down. Jesus Christ 
will never let you down. I don't want to be put on a pedestal. I don't want to be the subject of some person's ideal and have to live up to it. Nobody can. The Bible says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Well, Jesus Christ had, had been forewarning them. And even at this meal, he's telling them what's impending. And no doubt, it was a very, very sad environment. So as we read on, we find in chapter 14 of John, verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. That's our Savior. With unspeakable agony, just hours away, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the sorrow amongst his men. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to comfort them. He gives them that hope. In fact, the Bible tells us they even sang. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 26, 30, when they had sung in him, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Let me give you a little tip here. Uh, this is something that could encourage you when you're down. That is singing. Singing is a powerful thing. Music's a powerful thing. There are some who say it's just amoral. It's not good or bad. Oh, contraire. Music's a powerful thing, and the devil can use it for his benefit, or God can use it for his benefit. There was somebody that was carrying a heavy burden this last week, and I, I said, why don't you just sing a little bit? I encourage them to do that, because it can be such a, a, a powerful thing. God's music, of course, it can drive the devil away. And, and what they sung that night, we don't really know. We can speculate. Maybe it was that same uh, Psalm 118. But look in, in Matthew again, chapter 26. At that point in the evening, Jesus Christ departs, goes to the Mount of Olives, but he pulls three of his apostles away from the rest of the, the others. And uh, the Bible tells us what took place then in Matthew 26 and in verse number 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The Bible tells us, And when he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, he saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? For those who doubt the humanity of Jesus Christ, we see him sorrowing in the garden here. We see his heart heavy. We see his humanity. You know, the, the, the book of 1 John was written to the agnostics who, who actually claimed that Jesus Christ was God the Son, but He wasn't human. He wasn't man. But here we see His humanity. As we look at Him here, He's sorrowful. He is saying, Oh, my Father, in verse 39, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. For those who doubt the humanity of Christ, we see him here in all his humanity, carrying that anvil on his shoulder now for 33 years, the cross of Calvary, and now knowing it's time. It's the time. You know, sometime in my life before I die, I want to go to France and I want to visit Normandy, where, where uh, our forces landed on June 6, 1944. After, after months and even years of planning, it was, it was D-Day. And it came down to where General Eisenhower just simply said, it's time, fellas, it's time. Imagine after 33 years of Christ carrying that burden upon him, it was now time to go to Calvary's cross. It was long anticipated, and of course it's been long remembered. Verse 39 again says, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We see his human heart here. 
All that Isaiah had said about him, all that David had said about him, all that the prophets and the angels had said about him comes down to this moment now. We see the the raw motion in it all. We see the anxiety. We see him grieved here in the garden. Why? Because he knows he's about to be separated from his heavenly father. Something that has never happened before. It it hits like lightning, the, the fact that him and his heavenly father are going to have to part because Christ is going to take the sin of mankind upon him The Bible says that the Heavenly Father is of holier eyes than to behold sin. So God would have to turn His back as the sins of the world are put on Christ and it's going to crush His heart. Now before He would endure the physical pain, the the mob arrives. There's there's Judas. He he points out Jesus Christ. It's about 1.30 in the morning and and, and they rush to judgment. They rush to judgment. In this world of, of, uh, of, of jurisprudence, what took place there in that trial would have been a joke. It's at night. That was illegal. It was before a, a biased jury. That was illegal. There was no defense for the accused. That's illegal. They couldn't even prove anything on him. And so they finally pin on him blasphemy. He's blasphemed. He's worthy of death. But only the Romans could put Christ to death and Blasphemy to Jehovah? That meant nothing to the Romans who had many gods. So the Jewish elders would have to change the verdict to treason. As if the the Jews were concerned about anybody being guilty of treason to Rome. They absolutely hated Rome. But they were hypocrites. And Pilate knew it. Pilate knew the motive was jealousy. And we looked at that last time. And so Pilate tried to get him out of it. But he finally caved in. And he condemned Jesus Christ to an unimaginable, torturous death. He walked him out on the street with the cross on his back, finally about nine in the morning. They crucified him. The sun went down at noon. And finally, the Bible tells us in John 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures, again, might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And they filled a sponge with vinegar, and they put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. It didn't mean it's, it's over like, like we say, I mowed the lawn and I'm finished now. What it meant, testalestai, meant that after all these, these pieces and all this process for all these years has been foretold, it's come down to this, and I have fulfilled absolutely everything. It's mission accomplished. That's what testalestai means. It is finished. He was born to do this. This is epic. He had gone to the cross. We read it so casual. But the reason he was on that cross in the first place is for us. He did all that For us. He took our place. He paid for our sins. Think about your sins, if you would, for a moment. The sins of your childhood. The sins of your adolescent years. We just hang our head, I think, if we really stop and think about it. The sins of our later years, if we want to call them that. The lies, the the, the selfishness, the anger, the temper, the the rage, the bitterness. Sins of... uh, Manipulation and, and sins of pride and, and, and sins of gossip and larceny and, and even now the sin that plagues us. Jesus Christ nailed it to the cross. He did all that for us. 
The law demanded a blood sacrifice. The Heavenly Father demanded it. But when Christ said, it is finished, He was saying, no more of those animal sacrifices. This is the one sacrifice for all time. It is finished. And different from all the other blood sacrifices is this sacrifice rose after 72 hours and ascended up to heaven where He is today on the right hand of the Father. And so we see Isaiah 53 fulfilled so wonderfully here. Jesus Christ was sensitive to the prophecies. He was subjected to the pain. Finally, we see that He was submitted to the plan. Submitted to the plan. Everything we read about in Isaiah 53, He was submitted to it. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't like death. We live in a death-denying culture. We, we don't like to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We certainly don't want a, a plan for it. In fact, we use uh, euphemisms and, and, and we use words to try and soften it up. A couple of years ago, I was out on the, the West Coast with my wife and we visited this very uh, famous cemetery, Forest Lawn Memorial Cemetery in the greater L.A. area. It's in Glendale. And in that cemetery, you'll find uh, a lot of celebrities. We saw the, the grave of Jimmy Stewart and Clayton Moore, you know, the Lone Ranger, and just, just many, many people like that. But in the cemetery, you'll find rolling hills. You'll find uh, sparkling fountains. You'll find uh, marble sanctuaries and, and all these things that are, are designed to erase all, all thoughts of mourning. And, and, and at that particular funeral home there, they, they, they ease the terms and, and they talk about the, the dead person taking leave. They don't call them the, the deceased. They call them the loved one. They call the funeral parlor the slumber room. They, uh, they talk about how this person has passed away or how they have moved on or how they are no longer with us. They've gone home because there's something about death that just spooks us. The Bible speaks of the sting of death. We don't like to talk about it. We're afraid of it because we, we know so little about it. Uh, we don't know what's on the other side. In fact, when Lazarus even came back, we don't, re, we don't see anything recorded in the Bible that he says about it. And so it scares us. It also scares us because it's so irreversible. It's, it's so permanent. Once it takes place, it is all over with. It also scares us because... It's normally mixed with pain. I mean, dying for most people is a painful process, whether it's in a car accident or whether it's, it's a lung cancer or, or a TB or, or diabetes or, or whatever it might be. There's that process. We don't want to think about dying. The last place we want to picture ourselves is lying stretched out in a casket. So we resist it. Well, Jesus Christ never had that option. He was never able to put it out of his mind. He had to think about it, even in eternity past, plus the years he walked this earth. But he was submitted to the plan. He was willing to go through it. It was the Father's plan. Look back again in Matthew chapter 16, if you would. There's something I want to point out here that we looked at a moment ago. There's something for us in this whole thought about submission. Being willing to go through what God wants us to go through. Now remember, this is before Christ went to Calvary. And in Matthew 16... We find out in verse number uh, 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to, to, unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. In other words, this is not going to happen to you. We're not going to let it happen to you. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. 
Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not, or you want not, the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Imagine that. He said, you don't want what God wants. You want what you want. I think we're all typical of that. There's something that God wants for every single one of us. And I've said this many times. God has a blueprint in heaven for your individual life and mine as well. The goal in life is to be where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be on that blueprint. In perfect submission to God. Submitted to God's plan. Peter said, I don't want this to happen. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't want what God wants. You want what you want. And so often we're guilty of that. Are we submitted to God's perfect plan? You know, there's a verse over in Hebrews that perplexes me. As I read it, it's an amazing verse. But in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it speaks of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Jesus Christ didn't joy in the nails that punctured him. He did not joy in being stripped. The Bible tells us he despised the shame of going to Calvary. But there was a joy that was set before him, before he went to the cross to endure it. There was a joy there. There was a joyful anticipation. You say, Pastor, I would dread it. How could he look forward to it joyfully? I don't know except for this thought. He took joy in doing the perfect will of his Father. He was so quick to please, so desirous of doing what his Father wanted him to do, that the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Folks, the only way that really we can cope with this life, and I'm telling you, it's rough and it's getting rougher, but the only way we can cope with it is to know if it's God's will, we're okay with that. To bow the knee, to endure, to surrender to whatever it is that God wants us to do. Is there anything currently that you're going through and you're wrestling with God over this like Jacob did? Don't do that. Surrender. Surrender. Maybe there's something in your future and you're going you're gonna to struggle with it. Why not determine right now to surrender to it? Problems come. Financial hardships, they come. Maybe you're struggling with one right now. Maybe you're going through one right now. Maybe it's a wayward loved one. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a physical hardship. It could be 101 things. None of us want to go through it. In fact, we, we would try and dodge it. And in some cases, there are those who even get mad at God and bitter at God, miffed at the majesty, as I put it. Not Jesus Christ. Notice again in Matthew 16, verse 23, He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. What was Peter's problem? Well, he was more interested in his agenda than God's. It's our, it's our problem as well. But Jesus Christ didn't need any naysayers at that time. He didn't need anyone trying to hold him back. He said, Peter, surrender, bow the knee. It was true then, it's true now. We need to bow the knee. Jesus Christ is willing to do that, to surrender. The only way to save the world was really to submit to the plan of God. Even after Calvary, he's talking to a couple of disciples on the Emmaus Road. He says in Luke 24, 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Wasn't this supposed to happen? 
Now, it begs the question, why do we have to go through these trials? Well, it makes us stronger. And when we get stronger, we bear more fruit. We bring God more glory. In John 12, 24, Christ said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Trials help us to bring forth more fruit because trials strengthen us. Trials make us wiser. Trials grow us in compassion and so many other things. I was talking to a preacher recently about his trial, and he said, you know, it, it has tempered me. It has knocked the pride out of me. It, he said it's improved his preaching. It really will. There are something about trials that you just can't read in a book. And God wants us to grow. Why? So that we can do more for Him, so that we can bring Him more glory. And so remember that when you're tempted to complain. Jesus Christ never complained. He was submitted to the plan. Submitted to the plan. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2.23 of Christ, who, when He was reviled, reviled not again, when He suffered, He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. When Christ was going through it, he didn't lash out. He was committed to him, that is the heavenly Father, that knows what he's doing, that judgeth righteously. We find out that Christ was surrendered. Such surrender behooves us. But aren't you glad that Jesus Christ surrendered? That he submitted to the plan? Now, why is that so important? Well, in John 12, 32, Christ said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Speaking of crucifixion, speaking of being lifted up from the earth, the purpose of it all was to draw the sinner unto himself. No cross, no salvation. No cross, no forgiveness of sins. No cross, no payment for our iniquities. Jesus Christ had to go to that cross. Why did we need Him to die for our sins? Because we're hopeless, helpless sinners who cannot work our way to heaven. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saves us. There are a lot of people and they say, well, I'm trying to live a good life so I can work my way to heaven. Well, if you look at what God requires, you even look at the Ten Commandments, you find out that people are guilty of putting other things ahead of God, taking God's name in vain, not keeping God's day holy, not honoring their parents, Guilty of, of uh, lust or adultery of the heart? Guilty of anger or murder of the heart? Guilty of lying? Guilty of stealing? Guilty of, of coveting? In fact, guilty of all ten. You know, it behooves me to think there are some people trying to work their way to heaven and they're doing such a lousy job of it. The key is Calvary. The key is Christ. The key is that sacrifice that I've been talking about. The key is that blood that was shed. And the fact that Christ, when he shed it, said, It is finished, testalestai. Now the work's been done. The price has been paid. Just accept it. Just receive it. Just humble yourself and repent of your sins. And let the cross span that mighty gulf that we sing about between you and God. There are a lot of people, they think, Well, Jesus died on the cross, so he's the Savior of the world, so... Thankfully, I'm going to heaven for that, like it's some automatic thing. No, you must do something with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. You must change your mind about your sins. The Bible speaks of that as repentance. And you must turn and put all your faith in what Christ did on the cross as the only thing that you're trusting in to take you to heaven. Not your baptism, not your church membership, not your good works, but the sacrifice of Christ plus nothing 
minus nothing. Now, you can ignore your death, but you better not ignore his death. You better look to Calvary. You better look to what he did and the fact that he did it all for you. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.